0: Well, basically, what we're doing now is to continue on that theme that we um, introduced just before the the summer period together. And um, we've come on to the uh, topic of, of godliness. So that's what we're going to be uh, considering this morning. And the one thing I want to do, first of all, is to say, what does godliness actually mean? Um, conventionally, we... Uh, tend to describe godliness as Christ-likeness or simply being like Jesus. And they're very good definitions of what godliness is about, but I'd like to get underneath the title a little bit and, and uh, try and examine in more detail what we mean by godliness. But first of all, I'm going to ask my lovely assistant to come up, and I'd like you to just think for a moment, just one-liners, Just lift that up. Just the top one is already there. There we are. Okay. Just sing out, shout out whatever you wish, what you believe godliness entails. Kindness. Kindness. Thank you. Anything else? I'm sure there's more. Love. Keep going. Faith, just. justice, did you say? Just, 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 just. okay, Righteous. righteousness, and then the one that goes with that, which is merciful, merciful, all right. Generosity. generosity any others holiness, holiness. holiness. holy right purity. purity thank you forgiveness, forgiveness. last chance because this is an infinite list I think you're going to find freedom, freedom. excellent Well, I think those are all perfectly valid topics. Perfectly valid um, subtopics of the whole term righteousness. Now, if I'm honest, I've, um, I've struggled somewhat to try and get to grips and understand more fully what godliness really means. Because I want to know how it should apply to my life as a Christian. So I've been considering a few incidents in scripture which perhaps may help a little in the way in which we view godliness. And perhaps even influence the way we behave as a result of that. So I think there are some key underlying issues that reflect more accurately what godliness will mean to us as such. And I've listed three. first one first issue I think that is key and it's not on that list at the moment is the word obedience now one thing is very clear when you read the Bible that God is emphatic about obedience he's passionate that we obey to the letter in fact he considers partial obedience as disobedience That's pretty serious. So we've really got to start to understand when God says something to us that we understand the full content of what he is telling us to do in any one instance. So I just selected a couple of examples here. um, And I want first of all just to look at the story of Naaman, just to touch upon it. uh, If you've got your Bibles, it's in 2 Kings 5, and it it just tells about uh, an obedient servant girl who tells her mistress, who's married to a a senior Syrian army officer, um, who's been struck with leprosy, that there's a prophet in Samaria that can heal her husband of his leprosy. Now after some uh, correspondence, which you can read about in, the, in your Bibles if you wish, between the king of Syria and the king of Israel, Naaman actually ends up um, at Elisha's home or place where he's staying. But he's not met with Elisha at all. He was expecting to go and see this man that could heal him of his leprosy. He's met by just a messenger boy who tells him simply that Elisha has said, go and dip yourself in the river Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. Now this upsets Elisha. And we read of it in this manner. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and, and, and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot uh, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and fafa the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. You see, he wanted to create an alternative. He wasn't happy with the instruction that he was being receiving from this messenger, or from Elisha, that had sought God's will on this instant. But then his own men turned to him and say, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? So he almost sensed the reluctance, don't you? So he went down, almost not expecting anything at all. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, just as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored. And he became clean, like that of a young boy. Interesting, isn't it? Do it God's way, and it starts to produce results. Do it our way. And it's pretty well ends up in d- a disaster. What happens? Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. He's, he's found the light, he's there, he's suddenly realized God is God and is meaningful. Please accept a gift from your servant. And the prophet answers, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I'll not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. You know, we can never repay God for his blessings. We shouldn't even try. We should just be thankful. Lord, you've done it again. Because it is again, gain. Just like Pete declared to us earlier for that that guy that uh, came unstuck. How often do we try and, and and elaborate simple things that God tells us to do? We, we try and switch it around to the way we want to do it. We often expect that God won't respond uh, uh, unless we seek the top guy. Uh, we, need, uh, we need Keith to, to lay hands on us for it to work. That's not true. We, we miss God's by that sort of arrogance we perhaps even stupidly imagine that even a child's prayer has no effect and we couldn't be more wrong we couldn't be more wrong likewise if God prompts you to pray for somebody don't disqualify yourself you have the presence of God in you, the presence of Jesus to achieve all that he asks of you just be obedient to that voice just like pete heard that voice of god saying to him pray that there no bones will be broken and that's pretty unlikely after having described the incident so we see that elisha refuses the gifts uh, that naaman wants to give him and who would want money for doing god's will would you fancy being paid for that uh, prayer of yours Pete of course you wouldn't you just think I'm so glad to be a servant of yours Lord to do your will and bidding Gehazi on the other hand thought differently he deceitfully makes the most of the opportunity to gain silver and clothing for himself yes he got silver and clothing but he also got something else. He inherited Naaman's leprosy. Silly man. We see that Elisha refuses elaborate gifts that Na- Naaman wanted to give him. I've done covered this bit, sorry. It. So what I really wanted to say is disobedience, which was Naaman's uh, Naaman's lot uh, has serious repercussions. We must do what God tells us to do, not, not others. But the interesting bit of this story, I think, is that Naaman's now converted. There is no other God. I know now. I know for myself. I've received him. And he asked God through Elisha if he could be forgiven when he his master leans on his arm he said it comes into the into the uh, before the god of Rimmon and he says can i bow down with him just to honor my master but he's already acknowledged there is no other god in all of heaven in all of earth than the god of israel so he himself is a converted soul now the interesting thing is how gracious and caring our God is in this situation. He says, yes, you can do that. Now, his very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And yet, he allows this man, this this foreigner, to go and bow down to another god because he knows his heart has changed. He's already a, a, a converted soul as such. I was going to tell a, another story uh, very briefly about um, King Saul, but because uh, he falsely believed that he could bring about god 's will um, by doing things his own way uh, very briefly uh, Saul 's son Jonathan had uh, attacked the Philistines and killed a load of them, and they were out for vengeance and uh, we we read that the the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And they went up and camped at Michmash, uh, east of beth And when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. They were out of it as quick as they could be. And what does Saul do? And I'm not going to go through this with you, but I'll just quickly uh, mention it. He, in fact, thought Samuel's due to come and make the sacrifice and tell us what to do. And because he couldn't be bothered to wait, he decided to do it himself. And we know what the repercussions of that were. I won't go through that one. Having made that sacrifice himself, Samuel comes up to him and says, What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul so replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come to the set time and that the Philistines were assembling, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering." To which Samuel says, you've done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And appointed him ruler of his people. Because you have not kept the Lord's promise. The Lord's command, sorry. So Saul's motive was to seek the Lord's favor in the battle with the Philistines, which was a good motive. But Saul had not been instructed by Samuel to wait. And that's the one thing he wouldn't do. He would not wait. He was impatiently and stupidly um, stepped into Samuel's role and tried to do things his way. Against God's explicit procedure regarding sacrificial worship, so taking matters into our own hands, uh, and impatiently rushing ahead without due reference to God, God's plan can result in dark disaster, and it costs Saul His throne. All right. Sim- uh, s- second issue, I think, is s- we mentioned faith. I think down there. I think it's just the simplicity of faith that counts. And let me just ask you one thing. Have you ever stopped to wonder how a man who arranged the deliberate killing of a faithful servant, having secretly committed adultery with that servant's wife and getting her pregnant, can be called a man after God's own heart? Never stop to think about that. I have. What element of David's behaviour can we liken to godliness? You see, this happened, this appalling behaviour happened in an age when kings had complete authority and power and could effectively do anything that they wished. And of course David took advantage of that but God challenges David subsequently through Nathan the prophet uh, with a parallel story which you all know about I won't read now that incenses the king because David doesn't realize at that time what that is being directed at what that story is about and he's incensed by the cruelty and the injustice of the story of this, this man that steals somebody's pet lamb. And he's incensed by this, uh, this uh, cruelty of this, this, this person. And Nathan turns around to him and says, you're the man. You're the very one that did it. And because of that, This is what the Lord says out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity on you before your very eyes I will take away your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight you did it in secret but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel and then David said to Nathan I've sinned before the Lord. Note, he didn't say, I have sinned against Uriah, the man who he had murdered. Nor did he say, I've sinned against Bathsheba, the lass that he slept with. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin, you're not going to die. But because of doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you, therefore, will die. And David's heartbroken. Heartbroken over his realization of all that he's done and how unfair it was, how wicked he'd been, how he'd let everybody down. And there's a genuine and real contriteness and repentance in David's heart and we know this because we read this in Psalm 51 have mercy on me O God according to your unfailing love according to your great compassion blot out my transgressions Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he carries on. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my, in all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And finally, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Can anyone believe that their sins are beyond God's power to forgive after hearing of a story like this but it's the genuine contriteness of of david's heart that is what influences the lord so greatly and apart from this most serious error Throughout his life, David constantly inquired of the Lord, of the way forward. His relationship with the Lord was deep and secure, and he maintained integrity in all his dealings, even with his sworn enemies. He treated them as justly. So what can we learn here? I think a few things. Godliness means keeping short accounts with God. It means involving him in all aspects of our lives. It means making every effort to enhance our relationship with him. And a simple and sincere acknowledgement of all our failings. Put those before God and he will forgive and accept. And finally, I just want to touch upon a third issue that underlies godliness Let's recognize that this world's standards don't always reflect God's way. What do I mean? Well, let's look at Jesus for a moment. Jesus frequently defied the convention of that era that he lived in. He taught with Samaritans, something Jews were forbidden to do. He did things on the Sabbath like healing the sick, which infuriated the religious leaders of the day. He related to and talked to women, treating them as equals, astounding his own disciples. He flouted the law by failing to stone the woman taken in adultery, not condemning her, instead simply telling her to sin no more. Now, today's society has embraced many new standards that cannot easily be reconciled with biblical standards. I think we all recognise that. We see that man's rights are held supreme over the Bible's explicit direction. Even sectors of the church have been complicit in attempting to twist long-held Bible norms and try to align them with modern secular thinking. I wonder what Jesus might say about say same same-sex marriage. When the Bible clearly reveals that marriage is between a man and a woman. Is it possible that 1 Corinthians 7 it could ever be construed otherwise? In exactly the same way the Bible condemns heterosexual adultery so let's not sort of just look at the same-sex issue at all it applies on both sides God has a standard for us all a standard that we must live by our job is as Christians is not to judge others it's but to love them as Jesus would He didn't condemn to death the woman taken in adultery, as the law of the day demanded. He merely reminded her that there was a better way to live. Similarly, we don't have to like our own laws, even though we're subject to them. But we can live a better way that aligns with God's standards, while still living inside and peaceably within our own laws. And continuing to value our fellow men, even if we can't always agree. Jesus would never reject anyone, anyone at all, and neither should we. Even if we wouldn't do what they would do, or even find their behavior repugnant, Jesus would love them. We've got to love them as well i read a book recently by an anglican vicar a guy called ed Shaw, and he honestly declares i experience same-sex attraction but because of his faith he stands by the values he holds as an evangelical christian he's staying committed to what the bible says and what the church has long taught about Christian marriage and sex. His choice is a life of celibacy, denying his sexual preference, yet firmly adhering uh, to the values clearly described in God's word. Now that's a tough road to tread. His adher- adherence to God's ways, rather than give in to his own Um, natural inclination towards same-sex attraction denies him the closeness of human relationship that he most desires and leaves him isolated to face a lifetime of singleness which he doesn't want he writes in his book the plausibility problem What I thought was a teenage phase has never gone away and I remain exclusively same-sex attracted in my mid-late thirties, despite all my best efforts and prayers to change. It's an issue I live with every day of my life. Quite a problem for an evangelical Christian to have. I believe that the Bible is God's inspired and thus inerrant and authoritative word to the people he's both created and redeemed. Through its pages, my loving Father God tells me everything I need to know about everything that matters to him. And he gives the reference there. And in many other pages of the Bible, very clearly say that homosexual practice is wrong in his sight, in God's sight. I'm absolutely convinced of this, Edshaw says. Despite my own same-sex attraction and those who now tell me, note, note this, knows that now tell me that God never really said that or has recently changed his mind. Doesn't that sound like the Garden of Eden to you? Did God say? Yes, God did say. And he's taken note of it. Now, who would deny that Ed's example of fully submitting to Jesus' lordship isn't yet another real example of godliness? There's a man who's following God's ways, even against his own natural inclinations. So what does God want of us? Obedience? Yes. Contrition? Certainly. Certainly simplicity of faith as best we can make it quickly putting wrong things right certainly aligning our values with God's standards rather than this world's modern secular standards we have to God's Word is true God's Word is inerrant in other words it's true it's not full of falsehoods I think godliness is summed up in one simple verse from Micah. He's shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? It's not complicated. God didn't make it complicated. He wants us to le- move into all the fullness of all that he has for us. Thank you. <laughs> that that was clearly something in agreement with what I was saying. I think that last verse of the the hymn that Uh, Keith chose that we we sang just now It, it struck me as as we were singing it you alone are God you alone are God and I surrender to your ways that's godliness that's godliness. father we we just bow in your presence now and we say Lord you teach us please to be simple in our faith Honest to your word clear in our minds as to what it is your spirit is telling us to do and quick to obey in order that we might please you in all that we do Lord adjust the way that we think you're invited Lord to direct our lives to be Lord of our, our every effort our every being Lord we surrender We surrender to your ways. Amen. Amen.